bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. We're glad you can join us. Today, we're going to discuss the topic of foreign meddling. And later in the show, we're going to talk to a friend with close ties to Israel. He'll discuss how Hamas's barbaric attack on Israel is affecting the Jewish community. In 2009, then-Congressman Ron Paul stood up on the floor of the House of Representatives to oppose House Resolution 34, which was called Recognizing Israel's Right to Defend Itself Against Attacks from Gaza, Reaffirming the United States' Strong Support for Israel, and Supporting the Israeli-Palestinian Peace Process. This was after another round of fighting between Israel and Hamas. Let's listen to what Ron Paul had to say. Uh, Madam Speaker, um, I rise in opposition to this resolution, uh, not because uh, I am taking sides and, and picking who the bad guys are and who the good guys are, but I'm looking at this more from the angle of being a uh, United States citizen and American, and I think resolutions like this uh, really do us great harm. Uh, in many ways, what's happening in the Middle East, and in particular, with Gaza right now, we have some moral responsibility for both sides uh, in a way because we provide help and funding uh, for both Arab nations and Israel. And uh, so we definitely have a moral responsibility and especially now today the weapons being used to uh, kill so many Palestinians are American weapons and uh, American funds essentially are being used uh, for this. But there's a political liability which I think is something that we fail to look at because too often there's so much blowback from our intervention in areas that we shouldn't be involved in. You know, Hamas, if you look at the history, you'll find out that Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat. You say, well, yeah, that was better then and served its purpose, but we didn't want Hamas to do this. So then we as Americans say, well, we have such a good system, we're going to impose this on the world. We're going to invade Iraq and teach people how to be Democrats. We want free elections. So we encourage the Palestinians to have a free election. They do, and they elect Hamas. So we first indirectly and directly through Israel help establish Hamas. Then we have election. Then Hamas becomes dominant, so we have to kill them. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. During, during the 80s, uh, you know, we were allied with Osama bin Laden. And uh, we were contending with the Soviets. It was at that time our CAA thought it was good if we radicalized the Muslim world. So we financed the Madrasa schools to radicalize the Muslims in order to compete with the, with the Soviets. There's too much blowback. There's a lot of reasons why we should oppose this resolution. It is not in the interest of the United States. It's not in the interest of Israel either. Did you catch that? Ron Paul said Israel created Hamas. A 2009 Wall Street Journal article titled How Israel Helped to Spawn Hamas says that Israel worked with a blind cleric named Sheikh Ahmed Hassin to ultimately launch what would become Hamas. Israel's goal at the time, as Congressman Paul said, was to create a group that would provide a counterweight to the Palestine Liberation Organization. You can't help but wonder if they're kicking themselves now. The PLO never accomplished the carnage Hamas just has. And speaking of today's most infamous terrorist group, 
Where did some of the weapons Hamas used to butcher Israeli women and children come from? Well, it wouldn't be surprising if some of them were ours. In June of this year, a high-ranking commander for the Israel Defense Forces told Newsweek that Israel was worried about weapons provided to Ukraine ending up in the hands of Israel's foes, including Iran, and furthermore, in the hands of Hezbollah and Hamas. The Israeli commander told Newsweek, we see the signs and this is very, very troubling. We are very worried that some of these capabilities are going to fall to Hezbollah and Hamas's hands. And it's not just weapons siphoned out of Ukraine by Russian and Ukrainian arms dealers that Hamas may have gotten a hold of. According to that same commander, some of the U.S. small arms seized in Afghanistan have already been observed in the hands of Palestinian groups operating in the Gaza Strip. And speaking of Af Afghanistan, who created the militant groups the U.S. fought for 20 years there? Geopolitics are complicated, and what Hamas did to innocent civilians is beyond inexcusable. It's downright evil. But we can't help but wonder, would there be more peace in the world if there was less international meddling? And joining me to discuss this is the editor-in-chief of The New American, Gary Benoit, and executive senior editor of The New American, Steve Bonta. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Paul. Did I Hello. mix them up again? <laughs> Your title there, Steve? No, no, I think you got it right. Okay. So, uh, Steve, can you provide quickly a, a brief history of how we created what ended up being basically, I guess, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, right? I, I get them confused, so maybe you can help me. Well, I mean, that, that was an outgrowth of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 during the Carter presidency. And so, as was our want during the Cold War era, we felt that we needed to have skin in the game. We needed to be involved there to help the, the plucky, freedom-loving Afghans mm -hmm. to defend their country. And so we, you know, we went in there and helped to fund these militia that came to be called Mujahideen or Mujahideen, God's warriors, mm -hmm. to fight against the Soviets. And in that, during that 10-year period of that war, these men were held in high regard. I remember well. In fact, I, I met one of them. I stayed at the house of one of them in Michigan some years back. And he showed me a photo album of uh, the many downed Soviet helicopters that he and his, his friends would pose on top of and so mm -hmm. forth. And, and in those days where everyone believed that the Soviet Union was global public enemy number one, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> at the right? time, it seemed like a good Unfortunately, idea. Unfortunately, one of those, I mean, it created the, the Northern Alliance and so on, but one of the groups that was spawned during that yeah. period was the Taliban. Yeah. And with, I hate to say predictable results, hindsight is always twenty twenty. but we all know now who the Taliban well, is. Well, I mean, but you know? I, I think we can make an argument for that. I mean, Gary, what do you got there? <laughs> well, I have a cover of the New American Magazine going back to October 12, 1998. And today, I'm sure just about everybody would recognize, recognize the face on this cover. Mm -hmm. We're saying, is this the face of terror? And of course, on the cover, we have Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And uh, this cover story article uh, talked about how U.S. foreign policy and, and uh, also the CIA, through assets that it developed ostensibly to fight communism in Afghanistan, radicalize uh, uh, um, Islam or, or the Islamic movement, yeah. including specifically this face of terror, yeah. uh, Osama bin Laden. And, uh, and, I, and I should state that this uh, issue of the ma uh, magazine, warning about the consequences of this, came out uh, once again in 1998, yeah. three years before 9-11. Yeah, yeah, so um, 
was it worth it? Was was what? Because I, I, I guess later in the in the next segment we're going to discuss. It's like, is there other ways? Because uh, the Soviets were somewhat disempowered. Uh, but what is what have we gotten well, now? One thing Twenty I, years in Afghanistan. Right. What do we get out of I, it? I think one thing we have to consider, Paul, is when you look at U.S. foreign policy, how over and over and over and over again, the policymakers keep making blunder after blunder after blunder after blunder, and so one has to wonder: Well, are these all uh, blunders, or is there a, a design behind this? But uh, regardless of how you look at it, is if this is just sheer stupidity, yeah. or if there is a, a grand design, uh, there's no question that as a result of U.S. interventionism, uh, the world has been made uh, far more dangerous. Uh, uh, and of course, look what's happening in Israel today. Uh, Israel uh, is a legitimate state. Uh, and what they're dealing with is terrorists, yeah. uh, terrorists who are you know, uh, just uh, completely evil uh, to the point of uh, beheading uh, babies, yeah. uh, killing women and children. And, uh, you know, would that terrorist presence be what it is today? I mean, obviously, crime is always going to exist, and uh, terrorism is, a, you know, is a form of, of crime. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we can't eradicate it completely. But would the terrorist network, uh, would the capabilities of the terrorists be what they are today, uh, if it were not uh, for U.S. foreign policy. And actually, you could say the same thing, perhaps, uh, regarding, uh, uh, you know, uh, Israeli policymakers. Yeah. Although, in that case, you also have to look at USAID. Well, that's a great because question. Because USAID is used uh, as a means by the United States to try to get Israel to do what we want Israel to Hold do. Hold that thought, Gary. Yeah, we're going to come back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we're going to come back, and we're going to talk exactly about that. Remember when the only uncertainty in the news was the weather forecast? And you could depend on your local newspaper to bring you the news with only a hint of bias. Nowadays, there's a deluge of news outlets striving for your attention. But surprisingly, all the narrative is from one direction. At The New American, we hold fast to the timeless truths of our founders and provide a refuge of honest reporting. Visit thenewamerican.com today and get 25% off your subscription. Welcome back. So, Gary, you pose a very, very great question. That being, uh, would we experience the extremism that we're seeing in the in the Muslim world if the U.S. hadn't intervened? Go on. I, I, think, I cut you off, uh, right. and, and you you were on roll there. Well, the short answer is, uh, I, I think we absolutely would not be seeing that. Yeah. And again, you have to question whether it's by uh, design yeah. or if it's simply happenstance. Steve, do, do you agree? Because some would argue, and I think rightfully so to some degree, that that's an area that has always been extreme. For thousands of years, they've been fighting there. What's to say that a lot of what we're seeing, you can blame or you can lay at the hands of, of the U.S. and other Western powers and Israel included? Well, I mean, the so-called extremism of, of Islam, it waxes and wanes across the centuries. Um, but, I mean, it's telling that the Soviet, the Bolsheviks, when mm. they came to power in the Soviet Union, the way they consolidated and, to some extent, expanded the domain, the domain of the Soviet Union into, into Islamic Central Asia, was that they portrayed their revolution as a sort of secular jihad. They used that language. And so they, they in effect, we're happy to harness the energy of jihadist, jihadi extremism to serve their purposes. And I think we see that happening to a significant degree 
in the Middle East as well. Uh, for one thing, evil theocratic jihadi type regimes like Iran, Exhibit A, Mm. Yemen, other countries like this. Syria. Uh, Syria to some degree, certainly, um, you know, um, and not to lump, I mean, there are differences, I realize that, but, but they, they serve as a very convenient sort of villain out of central casting, you know, a foil for us to say, oh, look, you know, these bad guys with the scary mustaches and, you know, ranting and raving in that scary language that we don't understand, you know, they're the enemy. And, um, and in other cases, Harness that 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 energy in the service mm -hmm. of the broader goal, goals of of, of of the left, and so I mean this is also why you see in the United States, as we were discussing in yesterday's show, hotbeds of leftist activism, particularly university campuses, are places that are expressing all this open sympathy for the cause of Hamas and the Palestine and 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 Palestine, and always have. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something I'm going to talk, we're going to talk in next segment with our friend Andy Delin. This idea, because obviously their their defense is that uh, Israel is on is is an occupier and is on land that they shouldn't be in. But we're we're going to touch that on that later. Steve, so earlier in the day you were talking about this idea that uh, I, I guess it, it sounded like you were almost talking about the ignorance of, of foreign policy experts in America and how they're viewed outside of America. Can can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, I mean. Years ago in another life, when I was doing my, my PhD research, I, I, was in, I was in Sri Lanka, which at the time was in a, a bitter civil war that very few people outside the country even understood between the Sinhalese and the Tamils. I won't go into detail with that, but what I noticed was <clears throat> the circumstances I was in there, uh, I, I had a, a prestigious government research fellowship, and so I got to meet the ambassador and all the, the key mm -hmm. personnel at the U.S. Embassy. And it struck me as significant at the time that not one of them spoke any of the local languages or knew much of what was going on. And yet, every time there was a flare-up in the Civil War, we would presume to step in and take sides and say, well, now this is you know, good and bad and so forth. And, 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 and I've subsequently learned that this is the case throughout much of the non-Western world, that much of our Foreign Service staff Include, certainly including ambassadors and charged affair, affairs and so forth, typically don't speak lo the local languages in yeah. many countries, including, I mean, we, we have, a, have a big problem throughout the U.S. government, including the State, well, the State Department in general, including the Foreign Service. We don't have a lot of people who are fluent in Arabic. We don't have a lot of people who are really fluent in, in Mandarin Chinese. Just to cite two, two That's major so examples. That's so weird because you would think yeah. they would have taken some courses in college. They do. And they, I mean, they do. Many of them, they take, they take the Foreign Service course before they go. They're just they not go. fluid. They just don't. They, they just yeah. don't. So, so the, the, there's a dearth of, of expertise. Mm -hmm. And where ambassadors are concerned, particularly to major places like, say, China, Okay, yeah. or or I don't know, Saudi Arabia, and other mm -hmm. you know pivotal states around the world that we have important relationships with, those the ambassadorships are often these plum rewards that are conferred on major donors yeah. to, to electoral campaigns. Oh, and and so as a result, you have this circumstance where most of the time, the U.S. ambassador to China doesn't speak Chinese. Mm -hmm. okay? U.S. ambassadors in the Arab, Arabic-speaking world don't speak Arabic and so forth. And we have to, and so as a consequence, they really have little inkling. There, there are typically specialists, yeah. you know, squirreled away in the embassies that, that who, who, who read the local newspapers and try to follow what's going on. But, but a lot of the people who are making the policy decisions don't really know what's going on. They don't know what's being said in the mosques yeah. and being said in the Communist Party publications or whatever. And so they're really caught flat-footed and clueless. That's interesting. You know? Gary, what is this obsession that 
the United States has with policing the world. <laughs> I, I think it has everything to do with the new world order that the architects of that new world order yeah. want to create, huh. uh, where they imagine themselves being gods on earth. And Are we the tip of the spear of the new world and, order? Uh, everybody, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, and of course, I, I don't mean America, obviously, but, uh, but the tip of the spear in terms of the insiders who exercise such great control over U.S. government policy. And of course, oftentimes people refer to that as the, the deep state. But I want to get back to what I was saying earlier about uh, is it uh, accidental yeah. uh, versus on purpose. And let me just cite uh, one example. Uh, the U.S. government not only gives aid to Israel, Mm -hmm. The U.S. government also gives aid to uh, Israel's enemies, yeah. including the Palestinian Authority. Uh, does that make any sense? No, whatsoever. No. I think that's to what... arm, you know, to basically finance both sides. And uh, uh, I think it's not only a case of the U.S. being better off. Uh, I believe that Israel would be better off uh, if we were to stop giving that aid, and Israel were able to put uh, Israel first. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's a point to be made, like if we would have stayed out of Ukraine and Afghanistan, uh, maybe there wouldn't be weapons. These people wouldn't oh, be so armed absolutely. as well, right? And yes. I'm sure they've also reverse engineered mm -hmm. some of this stuff, right? Any, any? Do we know anything about that? I'm, I'm sure that's happening too. Well, we know that China, for example, is masters of reverse engineering. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what is a better way? Is there a way, or, or I think we may have touched. I mean, we've been everything's been kind of all over the place this week, but is there a, a good balance or are we talking about just complete non-intervention here? Non-intervention, no intervention whatsoever. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I would just stress that there is a difference between non-interventionism and isolationism. We are not isolationists. Okay. And uh, to uh, have... Good thing uh, you brought that up because I right, think that's to, to exactly people, the label. people the people would... exchanges... Uh, uh, you know, people uh, going back and forth uh, between the countries mm -hmm. uh, to have uh, trade and, and whatnot, uh, all those are wonderful things. Uh, the problem is when you get government involved, because when governments get involved, well, for example, governments create wars. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Steve? Any, any thoughts on that? Well, only that, you know, there is this, this old and often misapplied doctrine of preemptive war. But I, do, I, I can conceive of circumstances where preemptive action might be necessary, particularly in a world of ICBMs. Mm -hmm. if, if a regime like Iran in its current state were to get ICBMs, nuclear tipped, there's little doubt that with little provocation, they would probably use them against us because they have this extreme, bizarre, uh, you know, religious doctrine that wants to hasten the end times. Yeah, you know, huh. they, they, I mean, there's a, as we remarked again on yesterday's show, they're really itching for war. <clears throat> so they really and want to bring th on there this There are chaos. regimes that are crazy beyond the normal standards of government crazy. You know, most governments are run from top to bottom by, by, by thoroughly pathological, even psychopathic individuals. Yeah. But then even among psychopaths and sociopaths, there's a gradation. Mm. <laughs> Some are, are completely nihilistic and want to see the world burn. And then there are others that, that ultimately want to serve themselves and, and don't relish <laughs> the idea of, of being vaporized in a mushroom cloud. So yeah, yeah. For, for such souls, you know, more passive deterrence works. They probably don't want to see the world burn because then they wouldn't be able to rule it. Or what would they rule over? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? 
Thank you, gentlemen. We are all out of time for this segment. After this, we're going to bring our friend in, Andy Delin, and he's going to be talking about how this is affecting the Jewish community. We'll be right back. Sophia paused before the door. It read, Department of Bi-Digital Convergence. Just inside was a new world, a better world, the one of everlasting life, of no pain, of no loss, of no problem. She entered the chamber and her surroundings changed. She saw around her an infinite field of waving golden grain surmounted by cloudless blue sky. The AI voice whispered gently in her mind, Welcome to the singularity. She couldn't see it and couldn't feel it, but her body had almost instantly been covered by a swarm of tiny gray multi-legged bots that melted through her clothes and into her skin. Not perceiving the nightmare, her eyes had already been consumed and the rest of her body was dissolving as the bots digested her flesh. She felt only a warmth suffusing her being. Drowsy, she drifted to sleep, and her last thought was one of panic. Would she ever wake? Could a nightmare vision like this be an outcome of the much-hyped transhumanist technological singularity? Enter the world of the future as illuminated by the experience of the past in Endgame. The new book by Dennis Barrett, the publisher of The New American Magazine, and find out how the disastrous COVID pandemic response fits with the technocratic elite's thirst to create a transhumanist utopia. Get Endgame from shopjbs.org with free shipping with code ENDSHIP, E-N-D-S-H-I-P. Or get Endgame and the Great Reset Collector's Issue of the New American Magazine and get free shipping plus an additional 20% off both with code N20, E-N-D-2-0. Joining me to discuss Israel's war and how this has affected the Jewish community is John Birch Society National Councilman Andy Delin. Welcome, Andy. Hey, nice to be here with you guys. Hey, so I want to ask you first off, what was the reaction when you learned what happened? Uh, I guess on Saturday. I don't know if you guys learned on Saturday or you didn't hear till later. Uh, no, we didn't hear till later because uh, it's a Sabbath, mm-hmm. and uh, nobody's got any any kind of electronics on to listen. Yeah. So right after that, we checked in with everything, and I have. Uh, two daughters and 10 grandkids living in Israel. So uh, you can believe I was all over it right after the Sabbath was over. But they're living in a place called Lud, uh, L-O-D, Lud, which um, is not been really affected by this uh, invasion and um, or incursion, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they have a very few alarms going off. The kids are still playing outside. However, there are some areas of Israel that are terrible. I mean, they've really been overrun uh, by uh, Hamas. And um, what, what the U.S. fails to understand in this whole thing is that not everybody is into freedom and liberty and, like we are. And uh, uh, their whole um, setup of their faith is not the same as ours and it's not and it's not even built the same uh it's much more strict much more um, uh, into uh, uh, personal sacrifice kind of stuff than we are um and uh we try to design programs you know that that are are, are nice to them they don't see it that way mm. and that's what happens and eventually they explode and um, uh, we all we ask them to do is be law-abiding citizens, but uh, they uh, have a higher, they say, a higher calling than that. 
and they basically don't want Israel to exist. Yeah. Um, was it was it hard to believe that they broke through like that? I mean, that's never happened in, in Israel. That's right. Well, I will tell you this, and um, I might get in trouble for this, but uh, this is what you want to know what the community is thinking, and this is what they're thinking, that uh, this was an inside job. Oh, People wow. say, well, how can you say that? Well, because the Israel has these fences that are totally impenetrable. They have cameras. They have guards. They have uh, incredible security that uh, you can't penetrate. And yet, we have videos showing them basically cutting a hole in the, in the fence and going right through. And that's something that's not an Israeli situation. Yeah. The, Some, the, the, what I heard about that, and tell me if this is something you heard as well, is that they somehow... They, they had some sort of cyber attack that disabled, I guess what I heard was the fences were very sensitive, and but they weren't, in that case, they weren't. And part of the reason was that because I guess they launched some sort of cyber attack that didn't provide the alerts. Have you heard anything like it that? Could, it could be something like that. I'll tell you why. It took the idea of seven hours to activate, and that's totally inexcusable and or unexcusable. The... Um, it's just something that doesn't make any sense. Um, the IDF is always right on station. Um, I'll just tell you that Israel, the whole defense system in Israel is way above uh, other countries, including ours. Uh, in the uh, Yom Kippur War, the Israelis knew that the planes were getting ready to fly, and they took the planes out on the, on the, uh, in the airport before they were able to even get into the air. That's typical of uh, what type of defense they have and so for them to wait seven hours uh if it's not an inside job it's like you said somehow all the alerts were disabled which uh provides a pretty high-tech uh situation which um normally israel will be able to uh, adapt to that but for some reason they were not ready yeah and uh once the idf got into action um a lot of good things happened i mean they were able to seal the southern border pretty quick which they did. Unfortunately, a lot of people got through before they did that, and uh, a lot of people got uh, got killed, which is extremely sad. But it's, um, I will tell you this, that for the first time also that I've known uh, in doing Israeli politics and what's going on, uh, they've actually taken a lot of action to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, Gaza right now has been... Uh, pretty bombed out. Uh, according to Israeli Defense Forces, uh, Gaza right now basically is a, is a tent city. There's no, all the buildings are blown up. And, um, you know, this is the best information we have. Is, so, is Israel going uh, to annex? Is Israel going, are they going to annex Gaza? Uh, I had, they have not said, and I haven't heard, so I can't comment on that. Okay. But uh, I would say to you, that, and I have told actually Netanyahu this, that uh, they need to eliminate Hamas from Israel. In other words, there cannot be any Hamas people in Israel at all. If there is, they got two choices, leave or be liquidated. And, um, and that's it. And that's, that's where they're at. And, it, and if they, and you can't negotiate with this kind of evil. If they do that, somebody told me over there that... Uh, the Oslo Accords prevent them from moving on this. I really don't care what kind of agreement they have. It's like gun control. You know, we were all big on gun control. 
Gun control only works when you have people that are not criminals and they pay attention to the legislation. Uh, criminals don't care about laws and gun control and so forth. All it does is make honest people unable to protect themselves. Yeah. So, it, it, right. And it's the same kind of deal here is that um, these people obviously have no use for anybody's laws, anybody's uh, anything. So we have to be ready to defend ourselves, and we usually are um, in a it, tremendous way. But well, it, in this case, it didn't happen. It, it, speaking of gun control, uh, we looked up some of the laws, and I know we talked to you a few days ago, and I, I don't know exactly if, if you agree or not, but it seems like despite the fact that uh, citizens are allowed to have firearms, there seem to be a lot of burdensome uh, regulations. You know, there's regulations on how many bullets. There's, I guess there's regulations on where you can keep them, and you're more qualified if you're in certain parts of the, uh, of the border. That doesn't sound very practical, Andy. Yeah, it's not, it's not only not practical. Gun control is not the issue and not the problem. The problem is society has changed, and its mores have changed. Uh, when I was in high school, we had a gun club, and most of the people that were in my class had guns in their cars. They took the guns to school with them. They brought them into the building. They went down. They had a gun control. Or they had a gun uh, um, program where, where we, we shot. We had competition. We had all kinds of stuff. When it was over, people took their guns back. They brought them back to their cars, and they went to class. I mean, that's that's the way it was. So... The thing is that and there was no gun control or you know, was nobody got shot. Nobody had any problems because the society was such that it wasn't even an issue that there's going to be a problem. And uh, this brings me back to the country's founders, which said that these laws that we put on the in this Constitution were made for a moral and upright society. And if it, the society is no longer moral and upright, the laws aren't going to hold. Yeah. Uh, and there's, see, I think I saw an article yesterday or today, though. It seems like uh, that Israel is thinking about kind of loosening some of those regulations. Does that sound right? Yes. And uh, where, where Israel used to be very tight with uh, allowing uh, weapons, now they're saying if you're qualified to have a rifle, get one and have one <laughs> and, uh, and be ready to defend yourself. I'll just uh, tell you this. I'll yeah, say this very quickly. Go ahead. Is is that um, uh, we had um, uh, some legislation years and years ago about people that um, offered, uh, and 60% of the Arabs took them up on it to relocate these people and um, and uh, pay them to relocate. And 60% wanted to do it. The Israeli government shut it down. And, uh, and that was kind of sad because uh, uh, whatever it would have cost would be nothing compared to what it would, you know, what we're going through now. And uh, uh, yet um, they wanted they, they wanted to move, and then and they were ready to do it. So that was a, an also a failure of the administration. At that time, they stopped it, and they never should have stopped it. All right. Well, Andy, we got to take a quick break. We're going to come back and I want to talk about the history of this, this long history of conflict between Israel and Gaza and the Palestinians. We'll be right back. They say I'm part of a global plan. I don't think so. It's too hot. It's too cold. You know what? The weather changes. Here's the news, Dad. Nope. 
It's hard to tell what's real and what's fake these days. Ditch the fake news and always get the truth. Go to thenewamerican.com. Welcome back, folks. We have JBS National Councilman Andy DeLynn on the line here, and we're talking about the reaction of the Jewish community to what's happened in Israel. So, Andy, uh, I think one of the things I really want to get out there, and and I, I know that we have a smart audience, but just in case there's someone who doesn't understand the history here, uh, we're also hearing from lots of pro-Palestinians, and one of the most common uh, pieces of rhetoric that we hear is that this is Israel's fault because, one, Israel is an occupier, and it stole lands that it doesn't belong on. How does the Jewish community answer that? Okay, well, if we want to say it that way, we're going to have to get religious here for two seconds and say that the creator of the universe gave this land to the Jewish people. Uh, in fact, uh, when we, we translate, mistranslated the beginning where the Torah says, Breshis bara Elohim, then that's translated as, in the beginning, God created. And that doesn't make any sense because God doesn't have a beginning. God has been here all time, way before, way after, and so forth. So uh, there was somebody that's uh, more um, educated in language, and he said that the word um, brachis is not does not really mean in the beginning. It's actually two words. It's, it should be translated as brachis, mm-hmm. brachis. For the sake of the rachis, the world was created. Who are the rachis? It's the Jewish people, and that's what it says in in the Bible. So, um, and that makes more sense because there's no such thing as a beginning in this case. But uh, since that since it was said that way, uh, the people that are not part of the Rishis um, are kind of jealous about the people that are, and they always say that the Jews are the chosen people, but being chosen means that our job is to set an example for the world on um, on monotheistic and proper behavior. And uh, other people feel, I guess, they should have been included in this. And so the land, uh, and, and this is another thing, the land uh, was given to the Jewish people. So um, a lot of people disagree with that, but of course the Balfour Declaration and other, you know, rec- uh, uh, statements from other leaders all over the world that set this up that way also. <coughs> Excuse me. Besides the religious uh, side of this thing, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, they do not want to accept it. And here's another fascinating thing: for thousands of years, other uh, people have tried to settle in that area. Nothing grew. It was considered a wasteland. And uh, the Jews moved in, and all of a sudden, the place sprouted and grew. And um, so it's obvious that that the Jewish people were supposed to be there. So, but in any case, people still feel like uh, they belong there and they're supposed to be there. But for thousands of years prior, uh, there was no such thing as a Palestinian state. There was no such thing as a Palestinian people, per se. Um, That was started by um, Yasser Arafat. Mm -hmm. And uh, he forced his people to abandon the land, saying that they could come back later. And... uh, uh, what happened is he set up refugee camps for them and tried to come back to combat coming back later. That didn't work out. That made him more upset. 
and that's set up for more conflict. Andy, so that's good. No, that's that's good. I'm glad. Thank you for explaining that. What do you think about um, we as as you heard when we started out the show? We were discussing U.S. foreign policy and even Israeli foreign policy. What do you think about that narrative and and that this uh, that that reporting that? Israel helped create Hamas, and obviously all this meddling by the U.S., I, 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 I guess you agree, that it's almost surely that they have weapons from the U.S. that they're using. What do you think of all that? Well, they, not only do they have weapons from the U.S., uh, the um, uh, USS uh, carrier Gerald Ford is in place to, to assist, and also the... Um, uh, Eisenhower is also coming in. Well, well I'm saying Hamas and Hezbollah. They surely there's been some weapons that have, have siphoned well, I'm out. Gonna, I'm going to get to that. I'm just okay. telling you that Hamas has nothing. They get their stuff from Iran, and Iran has a lot, and then they're able to give them a lot. And a lot of this is this whole conflict is stoked by Iran, who, by the way, would also like to see Israel destroyed. Um, and it's. Uh, Here's, here's also a, a, a surprising statistic, and that is that when they polled, there's a polling going on the Internet right now about who do you support in this whole thing. And believe it or not, it's 45% of the people say that it's Israel's fault, and 40% say it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's somebody else's fault. It's just surprising to me when you see the absolute ultimate evil that's uh, perpetrated by the uh, Hamas, mm-hmm. that people can still side with them on anything. Even if they think they're right, the kind of, of criminal activity they did uh, is so far beyond the pale that uh, you would think that even the, the most ardent supporter would say, you know, you got to stop this. It's, it's absolutely subhuman evil. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, so. Yeah. And I take it they do that, they justify this because they don't view Jewish people as, as humans, right? Which is obviously like the ultimate, uh, I, I mean, it's beyond racist, beyond bigotry. It's like you said, it's evil. Speaking of Iran, what what's the word? Is Israel looking, I take it there's investigations going on, seeing what part Iran had. Do, is there any clue as to what would happen if they find out that Iran was directly involved? Well, this, let's just say this, this is early yet. And the investigations will begin. Um, I will just tell you that, that no stone, stone will be unturned, and they will dig and find out exactly who's in, who's in charge. And it's uh, it's interesting because uh, when Israel saw that uh, there was something developing in a reactor, I'm trying to remember the name of the reactor, but in the reactor in and I think it was Syria at the time, Israel wasted no time in taking it out. They're not worried about um, any kind of, of law. They're worried about self-preservation. And if they're going to be attacked, normally Israel is way ahead of the game and is able to take out whatever is attacking them at the time or getting ready to attack them. That's why this whole incursion was uh, so different and so uh, uh, very curious that, that they were able to just walk in and, and start shooting up and killing people uh, willy-nilly it's just something that israel never did before and somehow it's like you said maybe the alarms were turned off uh maybe there was a way to stop it but it was uh something that's extremely unusual for israel um they they usually that's their number one defense 
and they were always way ahead of everybody else trying to do that. Yeah. So how are things now? Now are what? How are things in Israel now? Obviously, they're probably not back to normal, but what's, what's happening? No, there? they're not back to normal. I will tell you, the IDF is the top fighting, uh, whole top fighting organization in the world, really. Uh, everybody learns from them. They have secured the southern border right now. That's what they're reporting. There are no Hamas coming through the southern border at this time. But the problem is you've got people that are in the, in the place right now. Um, and that's going to be a problem weeding them out, and they and they will. I mean that that's what they're good at doing, and they will they will do that. So um, Israel's pretty uh, <clears throat> secure in the south. The north is the problem right now. In the north, um, we still have people confined to their homes for safety, and uh, we and they're weeding them out now, and they will. But I mean, right now that's their focus. Are they but anticipating least, Hezbollah and a Hezbollah attack in the north? Yes, yes. Because, you know, it's like, hey, let's get into this whole thing and see what we can do with it. Um, that's kind of where they're at. But um, they will shut that down, too, now. I mean, they're on active high alert. And uh, <clears throat> when that happens, it's not too long before they wrap it up. And I, the investigation will then proceed, and it will be very, very thorough. I mean, very thorough. Right. And uh, we will have answers to everything. You think so? You think you guys are going to find out? Uh, find out? Yeah, it? we do that. That we do that. You may not know that, but when they get done, they will know that. Um, and uh, the the perpetrators will pay. Thank you, Andy. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Osama bin Laden about that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. For more truth-finding news, make sure to visit thenewamerican.com. And if you don't have a subscription to our print magazine, you can get one online at thenewamerican.com or by calling our office 1-800-727-8783. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday.